Oh my god, they're dead! Who could have done such a heinous act? I bet it was that frog down by the swamp. I don't like that frog. He's got them shifty eyes. It was that convict Ironjaw, that rapscallion. I bet it was that strange shadowy figure that likes to swing in the park on Thursday nights. I swear to you, it was my stuffed panda. He's, he's possessed. It could have been Ricky's arm. We haven't seen it since it got cut off. I definitely know who the killer is. That that way. Way. Blank is the killer. Hello and welcome to Blank is the Killer, the unoriginal horror movie podcast where I, the prime suspect Josh Baker, cover six new-to-me horror movies with a random spooky topic seven at the end. To start off this episode, I have a correction to make. A couple episodes back, I covered the second November Hulu Into the Dark movie, Pilgrim. I said that the movie had a frame rate issue. Turns out my Chrome browser was borked and causing Hulu to be a stuttering mess. This doesn't change my feelings towards Pilgrim, that movie's still ass. Moving on, this current episode includes Mere Revenge, Underage Death, and Disturbing Sound. Come help me get to the bottom of these movies before Mere people kill my family for some reason. Number 1, Mere's 2, 2010, directed by Victor Garcia. Max is coming to terms with the death of his fiancée. His dad gets him a job at the Mayflower department store, which has been reopened and still has the original big mirror in it. A girl named Eleanor is missing. People who work at the store start dying mysteriously. The mirrors are killing them. Max meets Eleanor's sister and tells her how his bad driving killed his fiancée. Max and the sister team up and find out the two employees who died drugged Eleanor. They also find out that the manager forced himself on Eleanor, then killed her. Once all this is revealed, the manager is taken into the mirror world. Max, the mirror people, and the manager are the killers. The two employees who drugged Eleanor just wanted to make her look like a schmuck who couldn't handle her booze. Does Mirrors 2 capture any of the so-bad-it's-good excellence of the original? For the first third of Mirrors 2, it lives up to the original. There are two crazy deaths that are silly and great. Mirrors 2 felt like it was just going to be wacky deaths throughout based on how fast things were escalating. Then the deaths stopped and it turned into a boring slog while Max and Eleanor's sister got to the bottom of what happened to Eleanor. If Mirrors 2 kept the energy it had early on throughout the entire runtime, I'd be praising this movie. Let me start off by telling you who's in the movie. There's a knockoff Gary Oldman that plays Max's dad. Max is played by a knockoff Eric Christian. You probably don't know him by name, but he's a blonde dude that dates Britta for two seconds in the show community. He writes that song, Getting Rid of Britta. Pretty much everyone in the movie looks like a knockoff someone. The only actor in this that I'll name by their actual name is Christy Carlson Romano. Who's that? Kim Possible, Ren Stevens. You know her if you watch the Disney Channel in the early 2000s. I really don't understand why she subjected herself to Mears 2. Her character is one of the employees that drugged Eleanor. You know what that means, she dies. How does Ren Stevens die? Let me tell you. Prepare for a hit in the childhood. Ren Stevens dies in the bathroom after taking 
one of the most revealing showers I've ever seen in a horror movie. You see all of Ren Stevens, and as someone who's been recently re-watching Even Stevens, it felt super weird to see Christy Carlson Romano in the buff. I don't know if she was hurting for money or just decided why not bear it all for this straight-to-DVD horror sequel, but Ren Stevens is butt-naked in mirrors too, folks. Her death is fantastic, as most of the deaths in this movie are. She falls backwards through her glass shower door, which breaks into a makeshift guillotine that slams down and pops off her noggin. A lot of practical effects are used for the kill, and boy oh boy, was I there for it. The other great death in the movie, there are technically five deaths in this movie, but only two are fun and a spectacle. The other great death includes the other employee who drugged Eleanor's drink, whose Mears version of himself sensually cuts its own Achilles tendons and then disembowels itself, which inflicts the wounds on the real guy. Did I use the word sensual? For some reason, there is some thick sexual tension between that guy and his mirror self. The gore for all the cuts is practical and well done. The guy's acting as he's being tortured by his mirror version is bad and hilarious. Both of the fun kills happen back to back, which made me think that in this version of mirrors, all the mirrors want to do is kill a bunch of people all willy-nilly. That's what I wished would happen for the rest of the movie. Instead, the movie front loads all the great deaths and puts you to sleep with the second half. Since we're talking about the deaths, right after Max meets Eleanor's sister, he tells her about how his fiance died. This is completely unprompted and not relevant to the sister's situation. Basically, Max and his girlfriend were driving in heavy rain. Max made his girlfriend crawl into the back seat to retrieve something from his backpack. Max is probably looking at the road about 10% of the time during this whole sequence. The girlfriend finds a ring in the back, and Max ends up crashing the car right after, which sends the girlfriend partially through the windshield, instantly killing her. Um, Max, why did you decide to propose to your girlfriend while driving in a downpour? I guess the bigger question is, why didn't you keep your damn eyes on the damn road, you nincompoop? Max then says the crash was caused by a drunk driver, but I saw the tapes, Max. You weren't paying attention at all while you were driving in the heavy rain. You earned that dead fiancé. That's why Max is on the killer list. There's no way you can watch the flashback to his girlfriend's death and not place at least some of the blame on him. Why does Max help Mirror Ghost Eleanor? Well, Mirror Ghost Eleanor threatens to kill his dad with a pizza cutter. But Max's dad didn't do anything. Isn't this a vengeful Mirror Ghost? I mean... I guess an easy way to get someone to do something for you is to threaten to kill the ones they love if they don't. I was hoping that the Mears would steal one of the dad's slices of pizza, but that doesn't happen. What Mears 2 does right is the gore. For the most part, it's practical and solid. A guard is forced to eat glass in the beginning, and when he pops up later in the movie, the makeup for his facial scarring is amazing. All the bits of CGI are crap. Ghost Eleanor looks incredibly stupid, and a lot of CGI was used to make her look as dumb as possible. I stand by the original Mirrors being a so-bad-it's-good movie that should be seen, but there is no reason to continue on with the series and watch Mirrors 2. 
I wish the entire movie kept the energy of the first two deaths, but it fizzles out hardcore. Number 2, The Orphanage, 2007, directed by J.A. Bayona. Laura and Carlos have an adopted son named Simon. They all live in what used to be an orphanage that Laura grew up in. A lady named Benina shows up and acts all weird. Simon has a bunch of imaginary friends. The friends, who turn out to be ghosts, tell him he's adopted. During a get-together at the orphanage, Laura and Simon yell at each other since Simon won't go downstairs. Laura slaps him. Simon goes missing and Laura sees the ghost of a disfigured boy. Laura thinks Benina kidnapped Simon. Months later, Laura sees Benina, who is then run over by a van and killed. Paranormal investigators get involved and it's revealed that the kids Laura grew up with played a game with the disfigured boy, Thomas. They lured him into a cave where he ended up drowning when the tide came in. Benina, who we find out was Thomas's mother, blamed the children for Thomas's death. So she killed them with poison. The children play a game with Laura to help her find Simon. To get closer to the dead, Laura takes a ton of sleeping pills. She finds Simon, who died in a secret basement after falling through a railing. Laura continues taking pills until she dies, which allows her to stay with all the children. High Tide, Benina, a van driver, and an unfortunate fall are the killers. For the longest time, I thought The Orphanage was a Guillermo del Toro movie. All he did was help produce it and pop up as the doctor that tends to Laura in the ER. The Orphanage is a depressing movie. A kid dies in a freak accident, so a mother ODs on pills to be with him. That's leaving out all the other child death that happened in the past. The Orphanage is full of dead children. In that summary, I didn't bring up Carlos all that much. That's because he's not only a terrible husband, he's also a terrible father. He always makes Laura do everything, and when Simon goes missing, Carlos doesn't even seem to care at all. He's the worst. Not only did Laura ODing let her hang out with the kids forever, it also helped her rid herself of Carlos. Good for her. Being a ghost doesn't seem all that bad in the orphanage. The creepiest stuff in the movie revolves around Thomas. He wears an unsettling bag mask over his head since he has a disfigured face. When we are first introduced to his ghost, he makes spooky gurgling, rattling sounds. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of that creepy Thomas. That's alright though, because the ghosts in the orphanage aren't malevolent. They're just a bunch of pals. They don't even hold grudges. None of the kids that were poisoned by Benina are mad at Thomas, and Thomas isn't mad at the kids for the whole accidental drowning thing. How's the acting? Laura is played by Belin Rueda. Her performance is strong, and she has the most screen time by far. Roger Princep played Simon, and he didn't blow me away. He never felt like a believable kid. Carlos is barely in the movie, but he's played by Fernando Cayo. I completely hated the character, so I guess he did a good job. Surprisingly, the orphanage has some intense gore. After Benina is run over by a truck, she loses her jaw. It looks pretty disturbing and decent. I'm assuming it was a mixture of CGI and practical effects because it looked a little off. Laura rips off a fingernail, but I'm completely desensitized to fingernail removal at this point. Thomas's face looks like it must have been done with practical makeup, and for the brief time it's on screen, it looks great. There's a weird shaky cam sequence where Carlos chases Laura as she randomly ends up flailing around in the water trying to get to a cave to find Simon. I think her panicking and trying to make it to the cave makes sense, but I was not a fan of how the sequence was shot. 
In another part of the movie, Laura hears some banging coming from a storage building on the house's property late at night. She goes to investigate it alone, since Carlos is a piece of human trash. She finds out the source of the noise is Benina. Benina then runs away with a shovel while whimsical music plays. It's an odd music choice for sure. The Orphanage is a well-made movie that'll keep you guessing. If you're a fan of ghost movies, check it out. I'm beginning to realize I'm not the biggest fan of ghost movies myself, but I'll continue watching the genre. Number 3, Hard Candy, 2005, directed by David Slade. A 14-year-old girl named Haley baits a 32-year-old pedophile named Jeff to invite her to his house. Once there, she drugs him and ties him up. A girl has been missing, and Haley believes Jeff is responsible. Haley finds evidence that Jeff knew the girl and definite proof that he is a pedophile. Haley tortures Jeff and makes him think she castrated him. Haley contacts Janelle, a woman that Jeff is still in love with, and tells her to come over to the house. Haley tells Jeff she'll get rid of all the evidence of him being a murderer and pedophile if he kills himself. Janelle arrives. Jeff pleads with Haley and says he didn't kill the girl, but will tell her the name of the person who did. Haley tells him she already dealt with Aaron, who she says blamed Jeff for everything. Jeff kills himself and Haley leaves without destroying any evidence. Jeff and a man named Aaron are the killers. Turns out this movie isn't about Jolly Ranchers. For the longest time, I thought High Tension and Hard Candy were the same movie. They're completely different. Is Hard Candy a horror movie? Well, no. Not in a traditional sense. It can be considered a role reversal home invasion horror movie where the monster is also the victim. It's weird to call it a horror movie when you are rooting for the home invader and torturer the entire time. Sure, Haley comes off as a dangerous psychopath who is a terrifying character in her own right, but since she's pulling a Dexter and using her sadistic impulses to torture and kill pedophiles, she ends up being the hero of the film. The afternoon's the afternoon. Yeah, she decides to enact her plan during the day due to one of Jeff's neighbors being at work and another being on vacation. One thing that doesn't make a lot of sense in the movie is the part where Sandra O oh randomly sees Haley hang out on Jeff's roof. That's where Jeff ends up jumping to his death with a noose around his neck, but it's weird that Haley, who's been extremely meticulous and careful with her planning, would decide to hang out on the roof where she could easily be spotted. I guess we needed some reason for Sandra O oh to see her and randomly pop up at the house. Hard Candy could definitely be shorter. Sandra O oh could be completely cut out of the movie with no impact on the plot. How's the acting besides the pointless Sandra O? Oh? Solid. Ellen Page is amazing as Haley. There are only five credited actors in the movie and Ellen Page definitely carries the entire thing. I thought it was going to be revealed that Haley was older due to her general savviness and the way she talks. There was going to be a line about her being 18, but Ellen Page thought that reveal would undermine the premise. I don't think it would, seeing as Haley being 18 would make the whole chain of events a lot more believable, but hey, Haley reveals everything we know about her is probably a lie, which means she can be older in my headcanon. Did y'all know that at least around the time this movie came out, Ellen Page was jacked? Hard Candy, more like Hard Body, 
While working to thirst trap Jeff into taking her to his house, she flashes her intimidating rock hard abs. The whole abs reveal was so shocking to me that it felt like I was watching a comedy where a chubby dude lifts his shirt and then a shot of a super jacked dude is shown. Ellen, please don't kick my ass. Who plays pedophile Jeff? None other than Patrick Wilson. As soon as he made his appearance on screen, I thought to myself, yeah, that tracks perfect casting. Patrick Wilson is great in this because even his appearance gives off strong creep vibes. Look up a picture of Patrick Wilson and tell me he doesn't look like he'd try to creep on young ladies in a chat room. For the record, I'm not saying Patrick Wilson is a pedophile, I'm just saying he looks like one. There isn't a lot of gore in this movie seeing as the castration is neither shown nor real. It briefly includes footage of an actual operation in the background, but the movie doesn't dwell on it enough for it to be disturbing. Haley ends up with a cut on her forehead that looks fine, but other than that, hard candy is gore-free. One of the reasons Haley gives for wanting to go to Jeff's house is to listen to a live recording Jeff scored at a Goldfrapp concert he states he recently attended. Jeff, you moron. This should have been a big red flag for you. No one has ever been excited to listen to a random song recorded at a concert they weren't at. It was an obvious ruse. When Haley reveals that she's actually the predator in this scenario, she lets Jeff know that Goldfrapp sucks. Whoa. Haley, don't make yourself into the villain. What did Goldfrapp ever do to you? Strict Machine is a solid song. What do you listen to then, huh? Why you gotta drag Goldfrapp? To be fair, it's super weird that Goldfrapp is the band that was chosen. I guess Strict Machine and Ooh La La were charting back when Hard Candy was made. For the record, I like Goldfrapp's music. The hits I've heard at least. For the most part, I really like how Hard Candy was shot. Most of the cinematography is made up of close-ups that are purposeful. There are some awkward shaky cam bits during some of the more action-packed sequences that I found off-putting. Hard Candy doesn't really have a score. Songs are only heard when they are played by a character. The lack of score pairs well with the abundance of close-ups to craft a very uncomfortable atmosphere. The film's colorist received a spot in the opening credits. I found the shifting of the color tones to be jarring and a bad idea. I don't need the color and lighting to reflect how the characters are feeling. If this was a hyper-stylized movie, the awkward color changes might have fit a bit better. Hard Candy is a great subversion of the home invasion genre. Even though it's a little longer than it needs to be and Sandra O oh serves no purpose, I recommend checking this out. Pro viewing tip, fast forward whenever you see Sandra O. Oh. Number 4, Nightmare Cinema 2018, directed by Alejandro Brugues, Joe Dante, Ryuhei Kitamura, David Slade, and Mick Garris. After spider aliens infect his friends, Fred becomes the welder and kills them to stop the spread of the aliens before becoming infected himself. A cop also trips and shoots himself in the head, and one of the friends kills another when trying to shoot the welder with a shotgun. A woman with a scar on her face gets talked into plastic surgery by her fiancé and ends up looking like a monster. A demon named Mashit, I mean Mashit, possesses some people which causes a priest to have to kill a bunch of murderous children to survive. A woman who is either mentally ill or trapped in another dimension kills a doctor. After a carjacker kills his parents, a kid who is dead for minutes sees ghosts. His mom's ghost kills his friend since she wants him to die too. The carjacker pops back up and the kid kills him in self-defense. Fred, the welder, 
clumsiness, a friend with a shotgun, machit, I mean machit, a woman in a different dimension, a carjacker, and a kid's ghost mom are the killers. I'm going to explain some of the killers on the list before we move on with this anthology. Fred kills his friends since he thinks he needs to stop the aliens from spreading. Thing is, the infected friends still act the same. The spider aliens might be symbiotic. No one is shown dying from the aliens entering their body. Maybe the aliens could have been removed without killing the host. Let's not jump to conclusions and start killing our friends with a blowtorch, Fred. The friend with the shotgun just unloads on another friend who's been impaled by Fred. Sure, the shotgun friend was aiming for Fred, but the impaled friend totally died from the gunshots. I'm including the woman in the other dimension because based on what we see, the doctor she kills isn't actively trying to kill her. Sure, he says that the only way to deal with her being in their dimension is to have her kill herself, but he's not doing any killing. The others on the list are more straightforward. When I hear the word anthology, what my brain translates that to is one, maybe two decent shorts, with a bunch of garbage taking up the rest of the runtime. I know there are a few anthologies that include more good than bad, but I feel like those anthologies are few and far between. Luckily, Nightmare Cinema lands in the mostly good camp. Here's a rundown of the five shorts. We start with The Thing in the Woods, directed by Alejandro Bruges. I haven't seen anything else that he's worked on, but I'm interested in checking out his movie, Wanda of the Dead, eventually. Let's talk about what I saw from him this short. It starts off as your average cabin in the woods slasher. Thing is, there's a lot of great humor thrown in. A girl who's running away from the welder lands on a corpse and keeps slipping and falling back onto it when trying to get up. At one point, someone asks that girl if she's okay since she's covered in blood. She responds by saying, it's not her blood, then lists all of the friends whose blood she's covered in. That really landed for me. So did the cop tripping and shooting himself in the head. The best part about that death is that the cop shoots six shots with his revolver before the trip bang. I want to believe that was purposely written in as a joke, calling out how revolvers always shoot more bullets than they are supposed to in movies. Now, the spider aliens are CGI and don't look incredibly realistic. I've seen the CGI called out by others. This is a goofy horror comedy short. I'm fine with the spider aliens not looking 100% photorealistic. One of the best parts regarding the spider aliens is when we get one's POV as it chases Fred. The gore in this short is solid. My favorite gore is probably when the main girl's head splits open momentarily to show that she has a spider alien occupying her dome. All the gore is fun though. There's also another great bit involving knives. This was by far the funniest short. Next up is Marari, directed by Joe Dante. Girl ends up turned into a three-boobed no-nose monster after she gets more plastic surgery than planned. Body horror is effective. The idea of someone ruining the way you look against your will is horrifying. The makeup effects are solid. I'm a Joe Dante fan. This short just doesn't feel all that original and new to me. It's not like it's a bad short. It's a serviceable horror short for an anthology. Moving on, Machit, I mean Machit, directed by Ryuhei Kitamura is up next. He directed The Midnight Meat Train. Machit, I mean Machit, is a hilarious name for a demon. This is your classic possession story that ends up going off the rails. There's a part where a possessed boy contorts, which actually looks pretty creepy. Machit's, I mean Machit's design is okay, but comes off a little too silly and doesn't look great when the demon is shown in the daytime. 
This short starts off incredibly boring and is only saved by a sequence where a priest dispatches a bunch of possessed kids with a big ol' sword. There are decapitations, huge blood spurts, and severed limbs. You don't often get to see possessed children cut down and dismembered with a giant sword. I wish more horror comedies would include hilarious child death. The gore is hilarious in this one. Everything besides the sword play isn't all that entertaining. Luckily, Machit, I mean Machit is followed up with The Way to Egress, directed by David Slade. Hard candy, man. I didn't originally plan on watching Nightmare Cinema this episode, but it kept popping up when I was looking into other stuff. The Way to Egress is the best straight-up horror short of the bunch. That doesn't sound impressive since I think it's also the only straight-up horror short, but it's truly unsettling, original, and fantastic. Let me provide more of this story. Basically, a woman is at a doctor's office waiting to see a therapist. Her kids are waiting with her. We learn that her husband recently left her and that everyone besides her children are starting to look deformed to her. Places are also becoming more and more grimy. We don't know if she's battling mental illness or if she really has ended up in another dimension. She overhears the doctor talking to the two entities she believes are her children, even though they say they aren't. Obviously, the woman is an unreliable narrator. What's actually going on isn't presented to us neatly wrapped up with a bow. If you're a horror fan, I implore you to check out The Way to Egress. Elizabeth Reeser, who was recently in The Haunting of Hill House, plays the woman, and she's fantastic. The effects used to make the people she sees look deformed are amazing. It's the standout short by far. Once this great short ends, the anthology has been going on for about 80 minutes. That's the perfect length. The shorts have ranged from amazing to mildly entertaining. Since The Way to Egress is definitely the strongest segment, the anthology ends here, right? Nope. For some unknown reason, Nightmare Cinema ends with the least inspired short of the collection, Dead, directed by Mick Garris. Even the title is lame. Dead is a crappy version of The Sixth Sense that has a carjacker who loves to murder for some reason. It's trash. The writing is bad. The acting is bad. It's bad. That's all I'm going to say about it. It looks like Mick Garris has had a hand in creating a lot of horror stuff in the past, but this is somehow the first thing I've seen from him. If I should check out something else he's worked on, let me know, because I'm definitely not going out of my way to watch his stuff after Dead. Before it even came to life, my interest in Mick Garris is dead. Nightmare Cinema is an anthology, so that means it has a framing device. Mickey Rourke is a projectionist that shows these shorts to people who end up at the theater. I normally like Mickey Rourke, but his emo haircut and performance didn't work for me at all in this. For at least the first short, the girl who ends up at the theater is compelled by supernatural forces with no Mickey Rourke in sight. I wish it stayed that way. I go into anthologies with incredibly low expectations. I've been burned too many times in the past by them. Nightmare Cinema is solid with The Thing in the Woods and This Way to Egress being the best segments. I give it a strong recommendation as long as you stop watching after The Way to Egress. Treat that short as the last one and you'll save a lot of time and miss the worst segment. Maybe that's why they put it last, so you could easily turn off the movie after The Way to Egress without missing anything of value. I don't care if Orson Champlin, a direct grandson of Charlie Champlin, plays the carjacker. Number 5, Greener Grass 2019, directed by Jocelyn DeBoer and Don Luby. Jill gives her friend Lisa her baby, a woman they know was murdered. Jill's son Julian turns into a dog. Lisa gives birth to a soccer ball. Jill divorces her loving husband after her friends suggest doing so. Little Helen pretends to be Jill and makes Jill leave her house. 
Jill steals the kid. It's revealed that little Helen caused the woman from earlier's death. Little Helen is the killer. Greener Grass started out as a short film in 2015. Jocelyn DeBoer and Don Luby wrote, directed, and starred in both the feature and short. I really like their performances. I found DeBoer especially great as Jill. Everyone else in the movie is suitable. I decided to check out the short that put this whole feature into motion. All of the bits from the short show up in the movie. Since I had just watched the movie before the short, I knew all the jokes. I'm attributing my humor foresight to why I didn't find the short all that great. Greener Grass falls into the insanely quirky and surreal camp. I put it on a shelf next to movies like Hot Rod, The Greasy Strangler, Deep Murder, and Nacho Libre. Is it as good as those movies? Greener Grass is just like Deep Murder. It starts off weird and hilarious and exponentially loses steam the longer it goes on. During the first third of Greener Grass, I was laughing out loud at the oddness of the film. I'd have to say my favorite bit of the entire movie is Jill's husband's obsession with drinking pool water. Another gag I really appreciated was Lisa's husband almost endlessly removing coins from his shorts and placing them in a bowl on the dresser. Julian calling his mom a school and going into detail about how she's made up of a bunch of classrooms and filled with clocks also worked for me. Seeing as daylight savings time recently happened, I also loved how everyone kept bringing up how it felt darker this year. The first third is filled with expectations subverting peculiarities. Weird character actions, dialogue, and even signage in the universe is packed into the beginning of the movie. As greener grass goes on, the jokes become few and far between. The jokes stop coming and they just stop coming. For a movie that's whole angle is quirkiness, Greener Grass stays on its odd rails throughout the entire runtime. Early on, we hear that a woman has been murdered. Throughout the movie, there are POV shots from a heavy breathing creep who is stalking Jill. Does this lead to crazy over the top balls to the wall off the rails cartoonish slasher action in which the established overly pastel world is bathed in buckets of blood? It should have. What Greener Grass needed was an intense insanity-fueled climax that breaks the viewer's neck with obscene levels of tonal whiplash. Yes, I know in the past I have called out movies for tonal whiplash, but when your entire movie's shtick is being odd, you can do whatever you want with the tone. Well, since the amazing slasherama climax doesn't happen, what does? Jill faces little Helen Jill who basically just tells real Jill that she has to leave her house because she's not Jill. Real Jill concedes the house like she conceded her baby, human child Julian, marriage, and everything else in her life. The whole movie is about Jill being punished for being a pushover, which is fun up until it gets painfully old. Wait, back up. You said this didn't end in a crazy, gory slasher sequence. How did that woman even die? Well, little Helen spooked the woman into falling down the stairs to her death. This isn't a horror movie. Um, I mean... It has some horror elements like Jill's painful smile after she relinquishes her offspring and later when she removes her braces with pliers. All adults in the movie wear braces. But you're right listeners, Greener Grass is not really a horror movie. Going in I was pretty sure it would be light on horror elements if they were included at all. But early Buzz promised at least a little horror. There is gore. At one point Jill gets a haircut and when a strand of hair is snipped it bleeds from the cut end. That was neat. There's also a little blood around Jill's mouth after the braces are removed. Sure, removing braces shouldn't cause bleeding even if you remove them yourself with pliers, but blood. The movie technically has a killer. <sighs> I know, I know, I should have watched that slasher movie from the 90s where D. Snyder kills through the internet or something instead. 
That's definitely a horror movie. I watched the trailer for that and it looked horrible. Greener Grass isn't a horror movie. It's light on the gore, the acting is solid, the jokes that land are incredible, the production design and costumes are delightful. They come together perfectly to create this surreal pastel world that's inhabited by all these nutty characters. I love the score, it's whimsical and synth-filled which perfectly encapsulates the vibe of the movie. When comparing the two versions of Greener Grass, the feature definitely has funnier moments than the short. The problem is the feature also has a lot more downtime and lulls which made me lose interest around the middle of the film. I would say I am a fan of absurdist films, but Greener Grass did not work as a whole for me due to petering out long before the credits rolled. If you are looking for a completely zany watch, I recommend watching The Greasy Strangler instead. Consider putting on greener grass and paying close attention up until the classroom scene. At that point, you can transition it to a background movie. I'd love to recommend the full thing, but the writing doesn't stay sharp enough throughout. The highs are high and the lows are low. Number 6, Barbarian Sound Studio 2012, directed by Peter Strickland. A British sound engineer named Gilderoy takes a job in Italy on a movie called The Equestrian Vortex, even though he doesn't speak Italian. Gilderoy assumed the movie was about horses, but it's actually a gory giallo film. As time goes on, Gilderoy becomes more and more detached from reality to the point that he becomes cruel and fluently speaks Italian. No one is the killer. My introduction to Peter Strickland's work was the short he did for the field guide to evil titled The Cobbler's Lot. That segment was the best short of the bunch and put Strickland on my radar. I've been patiently anticipating his newest feature in Fabric, a movie about a killer dress for quite some time now. Barbarian Sound Studio has been chilling on my movie list for at least a year. Am I glad that I finally got around to it? Yes. Did I like the movie? Somewhat. For simplicity's sake, I'm going to refer to Barbarian Sound Studio as BSS. For the longest time, I thought it was just Burbian. For the record, I saw the version that has subtitles for the Italian. While looking at other people's thoughts about the movie online, it seems that the theatrical release didn't have the subtitles, which would definitely heighten Gilroy's sense of disconnect with his new gory Italian atmosphere. Speaking of gory, there isn't any gore in BSS. BSS uses sound to be disturbing. Instead of simply showing the gore that Gilderoy is tasked with doing Foley for, BSS focuses the camera on Gilderoy as he listens to women's screams and destroys vegetables to capture the sound of their alleged gory torture. The use of sound in BSS is very powerful. Most horror movies will rely on imagery when freaking out the audience. Sure, sound is usually there as well, but in BSS the sounds of screaming and torture aren't paired with horrific imagery. Definite kudos for how Strickland was able to make scenes of torture so unsettling without actually showing any torture. Instead of watching some practical effects gore, I'm watching radishes be pulled apart, watermelons being smashed, and cabbage being stabbed. Somehow this is more horrifying without the visuals. That's probably due to my brain filling in the blanks. Amazing sound design. That's the strength of the movie. Well, that and the look into actually creating the sound design for a movie in the 1970s. What I found to be the most entertaining aspect of BSS was watching Gilderoy work using different types of machines to record, combine, and distort audio to add to the giallo. That's the thing. I just realized why I didn't love BSS. 
I want to watch a documentary that shows the lengths a sound engineer had to go to in adding sound to an old Giallo film in the 70s. That's the movie I ended up wanting to see after sitting through BSS. What I got was a movie that provided a glimpse into the world of a 70s sound engineer, but also decided it needed to have a completely surreal and unsatisfying ending. BSS doesn't really go anywhere. Sure, Gilroy ends up turning into a monster, but that transformation is a discombobulated mess. Since I wanted BSS to make some sense, my interpretation is that Gilroy is in purgatory. He's given a chance to redeem himself and go to heaven by standing up for himself and the women who are being treated unfairly by the director and other crew members, but instead Gilroy ends up in hell after his timid nature starts to mirror the cruelty of the men around him. I'm probably off base with that interpretation, but when a movie goes full on absurd, I feel compelled to make sense of it. How's the acting? The acting is amazing. Toby Jones plays Gilroy and he's simply fantastic. Cosimo Fusco plays his boss and sells it completely. Everyone is great. I have no qualms with the acting. I just wanted more of, or not more of, I just wanted a cohesive story. I appreciate how atmospheric BSS is and think the craftsmanship is incredible, but I found the ending to be frustrating and meaningless. That being said, I give Barbarian Sound Studio the softest recommendation to fans of surreal films that lack a cohesive plot but have impeccable, suffocating atmospheres. Would I recommend it for someone looking for a fun, entertaining movie? Nope. Would I ever consider watching it again? Nope. I'm only giving it the teensiest tiniest recommendation because I know that huge fans of directors like Lynch and Gaspar Noé might dig it. I myself am not a fan of Barbarian Sound Studio as a whole. Number 7 Spoiler Free Watched Recently Stuff You know what's really spooky? Me babbling on about random shows and movies I've been watching. What? That's not spooky? Well, some of the recent stuff I've scanned with my eyeballs is in the horror genre. To start off with something that actually belongs in this spooky section, I rewatched Blood Rage on Thanksgiving. I've been meaning to make Blood Rage into a nice turkey day tradition. So far, I'm two for three TG days since learning about the movie. Blood Rage made its first appearance on the seventh episode of this podcast. That was forever ago. It's one of my favorite slashers of all time. It's chock full of hilarious, practically executed kills. If you've never checked out Blood Rage, you definitely should. I'm going to make a point to watch it every Thanksgiving moving forward. I recently saw Knives Out, the new Ryan Johnson movie. I saw Ryan Johnson in the bathroom at Fantastic Fest. I remember liking Looper and Turning Off Brick. I should give the latter another chance. Anyway, go watch Knives Out. It's a lot of goofy fun. Matthew Lillard is the killer. Wait, he's not in that movie. The actual killer is... Ugh. Oh yeah, no spoilers. Spoiler-free section. Who knew Daniel Craig could be funny? If you're looking for high levels of entertainment, you shouldn't miss Knives Out in theaters. Besides movies, I've also been keeping up with some shows. I'm still watching Castle Rock, even though it's pretty meh at this point. Castle Rock petering out towards the end of the season seems like a pattern. Is it still worth your time? Sure, I don't know. I feel like I have to finish it, but that might just be the sunk cost fallacy. Another show I checked out is His Dark Materials. 
I haven't read the books or seen the first film attempt. That movie was called The Golden Compass. Remember that? I vaguely remember a trailer. I think Charlize Theron was in it. Anyway, the HBO show is confusing and all over the place. So much information is blasted into your face without a lot of explanation. The girl that played the practically mute kid in Logan is the main character in His Dark Materials. She's not a believable kid in the least. Turns out, it's a bad idea to give a role that requires a lot of speaking to an actor whose only big credit is portraying what boils down to a feral child. Speaking of bad casting, Lin-Manuel Miranda pops up as a character that's basically the, for a lack of better example, Han Solo character. That's not a spoiler, he's in the trailer. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is great at creating things, I just think he belongs behind the scenes. His singing and acting are bad. Great idea, man. Terrible on-screen presence. He's literally singing when he's introduced. It's terrible. His awful performance was the final straw that broke the Josh's interest in watching the show Camel's Back. Maybe I'll check out the books instead. I'll try to have a more interesting Topic 7 next episode. Maybe I'll check out the Zomboat series on Hulu or that Spanish Demon show on Netflix. Oh, also, The Mandalorian is good. That's a wrap on Blank is the Killer 59, Mirror Revenge, Underage Death, and Disturbing Sound. If you dug the episode, leave a rating on iTunes or email me at blankisthekiller at gmail.com with any questions, concerns, thoughts, whatever. Thanks to Sticker Fridge, as always, for hosting the podcast. I'm going to try to cover some holiday horror in the next episode. Hopefully I can find some new wintry stuff. I know that Hulark's going to put out something stupid, and Herd Shutter is going to have dial code Santa Claus, which I've been looking forward to seeing. That episode will be out on December 15th. Until then, remember, do not mess with Ellen Page. She could still be crazy yoked.